0: This episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience is a replay of my time with Spencer Cohen. Spencer is the principal and founder of High Peak Strategy LLC, and he is expert on economics and trade policy with China and U.S. China relations.
1: This is the Jason Kavnis
0: Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest tries to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavanis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavanis. The Jason Cabinet's Experience is brought to you by Kavanis HR. At Kavanis HR, we deliver HR to companies for you now and for your people. Our guest today is Dr. Spencer Cohen. Spencer, you ready to be great today? Yeah, nice to meet you. Dr. Spencer Cohen is principal and founder of High Peak Strategy LLC, an economics and research consulting firm based in Seattle, Washington, specializing in regional economic analysis, international trade research, and US-China relations. High Peak Strategy LLC works with a diverse range of clients, including ports, economic development organizations, engineering firms, industry, and trade associations, and local governments. Spencer brings 14, year, 14 years experience in consulting policy and economic, economic research. He's a 2021 to 2023 public intellectuals program fellow with the National Committee on U.S.-China relations and affiliate professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Washington. Thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So before we get started, can you give everyone like a, like a high-level history on China, like the background of China? I know, I mean, I know, oh, wow. <laughs> I know you can't do it because mean, like, I think a lot of people think of China now, yeah. but China's been long, like, like thousands and thousands of years, right? I mean, people don't know about the, what's called a box-over rebellion, mm-hmm. how we kind of colonize it. Like, Can you just like give a quick overview? Okay. So 5,000
1: years of history. Let's in two what, minutes. In two minutes. Um, okay. Let me do my best here. So, um, yeah. So China... Obviously, has a very long history. Um, The first Chinese um, empire or first emperor was in 221 BC. But prior to that, there were multiple competing kingdoms and fiefdoms. There's what's called the Zhou Dynasty, and then after the dissipation or breakup of the Zhou Dynasty, there was the Spring and Autumn Period, and then the Warring States Period. Um, So you had a lot of different competing country or competing kingdoms that were vying for uh, hegemony over the um, the northern plateau or plain of China. Um, around the Yellow River. And so, um, you know, so you've had, and then the thing to understand about China is that as much as we think about linearity and continuity, the very idea of, of what it means to be Chinese has evolved over time because we think about the Chinese today as the predominantly Han Chinese, which make up about 91%, 90% of the population. But even the notion of Han Chinese is a product of many other. Uh, much earlier sort of ancestral sort of different ethnicities um, that um, have their origins in the Turkic people, Turkic-speaking people, um, Mongolian, many other types of of groups. So it's really kind of an evolving idea over time of what it means to be Chinese. Um, I'd say today um, there's, you know, if we were to fast forward, I think, for our conversation today probably about what's most because I can talk for, I can go off for a long time about Chinese history, so trying to be like succinct, you know, and, and Comments about that, but um, which I, its Chinese history alone is fascinating. Um, uh, but you know, throughout history, there's been a lot of, of concerns. So chi- about you know China's competing you know interests and also um, vying for territorial gains and protecting of their territory against other invading groups throughout history. The Mongols before them were called the xiongnu people, who were actually arguably the ancestors of Attila the Hun and the Huns, for instance, um, and then. Mongols later and like many different kinds of groups. So there's always been a, a, a really difficult territorial sort of um, conflict around their borders. Uh, what I would say is like, so fast forward to modern Chinese history, because I think it's really important for this conversation is that um, a lot of the modern Chinese identity or, or contemporary identity is really formed early. The national identity is really formed by events in the 19th century and early 20th century. So the last empire, the last dynasty of the, of that ruled China was the Qing dynasty and the Qing dynasty ruled from 1644 until 1912 and 1911. And then after that, there was a, a period of this, you know, upheaval, warlordism, and then eventually, you know, the civil war and then um, this, the victory of the communists. But throughout that period, the kind of decline of the Qing empire, there was, um, you know, China really experienced what they considered to be what they call the century of humiliation. And that really began at the end of the, Qianlong, the reign of Qianlong, who was the second longest ruler in uh, the Qing Empire, about 60, roughly 60 years. And China went through this long sort of descent. And really, it went from being among the most powerful states in the world, one of the most affluent, arguably, in many respects, to really falling way behind the West. China didn't have an industrial revolution um, like other countries, such as like a region such as Northwest Europe. And elsewhere in Europe um, and then the United States, so um, Japan had the Meiji Restoration in the 19th century that really pulled it out of like sort of the feudal period and helped modernize Japan in terms of industry and then militarily. And China didn't have that; it didn't experience that kind of industrialization. There were pockets of it, but not really at such a large scale. And they became subjected to a lot of um, really sort of you know criminal sort of encroachments by foreign powers. So you've probably heard of the Opium Wars.
0: Yeah, and, and there's something called the Box Rebellion. Is that in there
1: too? Yeah, Box Rebellion was later, but also um, uh, throughout, Box Rebellion kind of really capped off a series of encroachments um, by foreign powers, um, beginning with the Opium Wars and then all the way through to the Box Rebellion in the early 20th century, where Western powers and J- Japan as well um, began to um, both you know, be able to, were superior militarily to the Chinese, because the Chinese did not have the, the industrialization that these other countries had, and they to ask for extraterritorial rights or demand extraterritorial rights, meaning that they could, their citizens were not subjected to the rules of the sovereign country, in this case, China. They had those extraterritoriality benefits. And so you've, a lot of the treaty ports, um, or what became treaty ports um, along the eastern seaboard, as well as inland along the Yangtze River, were formed during this period. So um, Shanghai for instance was a pretty small essentially like a village until the British claimed it as a treaty port after the first opium war and now that that is really if you go, if you've been to Shanghai like the buns and um, uh, along the Pu River like all of the the sort of the the modern sort of Europe you know European architecture that all came about because of the when the British and other foreign powers um, seized control and developed it as a treaty port so the I bring all this up because the when we think about modern Chinese politics and modern Chinese geopolitics and foreign relations, and also modern Chinese nationalism, this they, the leaders oftentimes invoke what they call the center of humiliation, which really was all these events, and then of course leading up to and after um, the encroachments of the Japanese much later, um, the Japanese seizing um, German ports after World War One that were supposed to be re- repatriated back to China because China actually did side with the um with the Allied powers um during World War One and were promised they would receive those ports back or that that territory that the Germans seized. Um, And Japan was able to wheel and deal to get those, get, for instance, like Qingdao, which is a big port in the Eastern Seaboard. And then the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931, and then the broader invasion of the country in 1936, 1937, um, and all the the terrible crimes that were committed by um, Imperial Japan and China. So um, that's really important to think about when we talk about China and we talk about how to really what, how do we view or talk about Chinese history, especially modern politics. You can't ignore this century of humiliation that they're always referring to.
0: So I'm speaking generalities, but it's like in the US, if something happened like two months ago, we don't care about it, we forget about it. Mm-hmm. We have like no long term plans. You know, everything's like two months or like like you know the stock market the quarters. Where China said like no more like you know they remember stuff like literally hundreds of years ago, and the plan is like 10, 20 years in the future. Like, can you talk about more how China sees the world, how the U.S. versus how the U.S. sees the world how that affects our relationships with them?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Chinese definitely has, they, they they view their history in a large degree of continuity. So Chinese students, they really see like there, there's something unique and special about Chinese history. And so students study that history kind of in the same ways, but even more intense that like when we're in school and we study um, Western civilization, going back to like Mesopotamia, for instance. Right, and Sumer and Urn, like we, the but we don't have that. We don't see ourselves as as I think a, a connected linear in a linear fashion, right, to those like ancient sort of antecedents to like Western civilization or like Greco-Roman history. Whereas China definitely sees that connectivity, and they they really um they that's part of their how they view history. And it's I think it's a really beautiful thing. It's not many respects the way that they actually um see this degree of continuity. Um, and it permeates everything. It permeates um, their education system, but it also permeates their their language in terms of like idioms or sayings that often are infused in dialogue that have their origins going back to like you know different you know ancient periods in China. Um, but and then I think that the you know certainly like so they often think about geopolitics as well in the context of history, and that's why when I mentioned before about like for instance, center of humiliation. Um, china is always thinking about you know reclaiming what it views as like its rightful territorial sovereignty and you know that's why taiwan is such a big issue among other factors um, you know china when china tries to invoke for instance like its claims in the south china sea which has been a big kind of you know inflection point or, or potential fissure point uh, or flash point um, they refer to what they call the nine-dash line, which has its origins, the Ming dynasty. Um, so Ming dynasty was like 1368 to 13, 1644. Um, so, you know, and, and sometimes those are not well grounded or founded, but like, nonetheless, like they see things in like a broader historical context. Um, thinking forward, I think that there is, so a lot of people talk about China having sort of, or the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party specifically, um having kind of a long run sort of view of, of history and law or long run forward looking right looking far into the future and strategy i don't think it's in, i think it's true to some degree because i but i think that a lot of that's inherent in the nature of communist parties communist parties as command economies you know have five year plans um that's kind of in the dna i think of a communist party the soviets did the same thing largely um so i think that's part of it um a lot. There's been a lot of literature that's come out recently um, by people that fault that China watchers that has really skewed to sort of viewing China as having some grand strategy. or China having some grand sort of game plan and how they want to, you know, basically displace the U.S. and become the dominant hegemon in at least the Asia Pacific and potentially even broader than that? Um, you know, for instance, like there's been books by Michael Pillsbury, by Rush Doshi, um, and a bunch of other authors. Um, I I don't entirely buy into that um, because I think that it's, I think people are reading too much into the intentions or, or, or I think they're giving the, I, I don't think the, I don't think any government has the wherewithal to have that long of a game plan. They can certainly have goals, right? So reunification with Taiwan is a huge goal and it's a massive interest and it marshals all of the energy and, you know, of the Chinese people. And it, it invokes nationalism, but like, that's a that's a that's an aspiration and a goal that they hope to achieve, but it's not part of a long term. To have some sort of like documentation that says that we're going to achieve this, and here's how we're going to do it, and we're willing to be patients. Um, you know, China has a lot of problems they're facing now. I think that would that would interfere, right, or with any efforts to
0: try to have a long term plan. Does that makes? I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it makes a lot of sense. So, from your point of view, is the United States the only reason, one of the reasons, like they haven't tried to take over Taiwan yet? Yeah, I think we have a treaty with Taiwan. Yeah, so we have the, what's called the Taiwan Relations Act,
1: which per, that authorizes the US to provide aid to Taiwan, including lethal aid. So we do both aid as well as more, you know, more likely, more often in the case like sales, like, you know, weaponry and more material to Taiwan to defend itself. Um, it doesn't commit us to defending Taiwan in, or it leaves it quite open in terms of okay, what I think
0: means. a lot of people think that it's like Thai treaty wise to go like send troops over there to defend them.
1: No, I, I think that um, it, it, it's open to interpretation and so that was one of the agreements as part of the whole phase where because um, for a long time the Gomidang the which was like or people also refer to as KMT but the government in exile that had been defeated by the communists in 1949 they fled to Taiwan and so um, beginning with China um, in the 70s, the PRC, People's Republic of China, getting the UN seat on the Security Council, sorry, um, Security Council that was held by the Taiwanese government and then formal U.S. normalization of relations in 1978 with Taiwan, um, you had um, Taiwan kind of lost its status in, 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 the, in the sort of international order as an actual recognized nation. Um, or as the rightful government, I should say. Because the for a long time, Taiwanese never tried to claim that they were a separate government or separate country, I should say. But they always claimed that they were the rightful governments of, of all of China. And so they lost that status in the international order when the US, when first China took their UN seat and then the US formally recognized and, and developed no, normalized relations under Jimmy Carter. Um, but that said, around that same time, the US agreed then, well, we're going to you know, protect Taiwan. We're still not going to give up what, you know, our, alliance, our alliance with Taiwan, not alliance, but our, our relationship with Taiwan and with the, with the Kuomintang. And that's continued because of the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, that said, there's been a long sort of policy framework, for lack of a better term, called strategic ambiguity. And what that essentially means is that we don't tell the commune, we don't lay out in clear, in clear print what we're actually going to do to defend Taiwan. So, for instance, um we have evaded, which I think has been has was i think in, in that has been a smart strategy for a long time, although we're, it's now being challenged, but we have for a long time been relatively sort of evasive about what we would do if china if the mainland government tried to actually attack Taiwan and try to seize it. Um, we have never clarified because in part of it is because we don't want box ourselves in it in part because we don't know we don't want to get into a war with another nuclear power, right? so would be unpleasant. So yes. yes. <laughs> um, and China also has a lot of capabilities that's largely, you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a military expert to be clear, but um China has a lot of capabilities now that are are would consider be asymmetric. Um, for instance, they have surface skimming missiles that can that can attack, they're designed to attack an aircraft carrier. Um, they've created essentially like a denial area, area denial zone. Um, where it, because of the range of those missiles, it's almost, it's very difficult now to get carrier groups into that zone. If I think maybe like, you know, 500 kilometers, I'm not sure the exact range. Um, so they've built up these asymmetric sort of like responses to what is still a much more powerful US Navy in the region. So, um, the US is quite, as China has continued to evolve as the second most powerful military in the world now, at least on paper, um, the US obviously is much more reticent about, a direct conflict with china i mean we haven't had direct conflict with them since the korean war we don't want to have a direct conflict nobody wants a conflict with china um but we don't want to feel you know so but we are not committed to doing anything per se and that you know we could feasibly um you know we could we could i mean there's, the whole spectrum has been undefined right so if china did try to you know try to attack taiwan then we could have a hot conflict or we could just simply airdrop-in aid to Taiwan, or there's a whole range of things we could do that we have not specified.
0: Is there any type of diplomatic relationship between China and Taiwan? Well, so for a long time,
1: um, so it depends on the government, right? So you have two competing political parties in Taiwan. So you have like the, the Gold which was the, the original, I mean, it's evolved. The Gold evolved over time, but the Gold are or what's also called the KMT. Um, they were the, so uh, Chiang Kai-shek, for instance, that was his, that was his government. Um, and that was the party that ruled China for a while, then was defeated by the, in the civil war, defeated by the communists and fled to Taiwan. They ruled under martial law for decades. And then beginning in the lifting of martial law. Oh, sure. Yeah. You keep on talking.
0: I can just wait so yeah. Uh, so the so
1: the the KMT ruled with, under martial law for a long time, and then beginning of the 1980s began to open up democracy, democratic institutions, and remove martial law. And then you had this now flourishing of a highly vibrant, highly robust, um, incredibly open democratic society that we have today in Taiwan. Um, the KMT is still a powerful party, but um, they're losing ground to this other party called the DPP, um, which is typically more associated with 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 independence movements, um, the KMT um, never would never accept the idea of Taiwan independence, and so the KMT, despite being historic, you know, arch rival or enemies of the communists, actually developed, um, made real strides in building diplomatic relations. So, um, KMT officials um, under like the Maingo administration, which is the last KMT ruler, had visited, you know, had not heated up, but, like you know, had visited Taiwan. Um, KMT officials had gone to Taiwan, you know, and and had, or sorry, to to mainland and had some dialogue and discussion. Um, Taiwan and China are incredibly tied economically. Um, some of the earliest investments in in China after it opened up and began the reform period opening up under Deng Xiaoping and all the foreign investment, much of it was actually from Taiwan. Um, however, the DPP has long been associated with, um, a skew towards supporting independence and the Communist Party will not accept that. So, there's better diplomatic ties with the KMT, um, but the DPP it's very, very fissured and very tense because of that. Because of the their, the move towards independence, and they've not declared independence, but they've been, you know, it's they've been viewed as much more of the independence party and seeking much greater autonomy and independence, and potentially if if they were unfettered, you know, would declare independence potentially.
0: Now. Isn't Taiwan like one of the big makers of chips in the world? I know there's like yeah. a chip shortage, but is that like the high percentage come to Taiwan comes from Taiwan, I think.
1: The high, the very high, um, much more advanced chip foundries are in Taiwan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like um uh yeah, Taiwan is like the uh, you know, TSMC is like one of the the most important, if not the most important chip producer in the world. And it's not because of all chips, but it's the high, very it's the really, really high precision, um, highly advanced chips that are, are the vast majority are, are the first foundries for fabrication are in Taiwan.
0: So now like in Korea, North Korea, like no one really like goes back and forth to travel. But I'm guessing in Taiwan and China, people can travel back and forth pretty much when they want to. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's direct flights. Um, the A lot of, you know, a lot of people in Taiwan, I mean, there's an indigenous population in Taiwan, but then there's a lot of people who either and they're getting much older now, but like, um, or they're starting to die off, but like they're their descendants, um, came from the mainland. So especially from places like Fujian province, um, and then all over China, especially anyone who was like part of the KMT army during the civil war that fled went to Taiwan for the
0: most part. So, so let's suppose, I mean, you know, two scenarios, one scenario, somehow Taiwan became a fully independent country. China did nothing about it or vice versa. Taiwan become part of mainland China again. Mm -hmm. Would anything really change? Like, economically you know domestically it, it sounds like they're pretty much co already like would anything really change
1: well that's a hard question to answer because the only right now so on the first point if taiwan became an independent country that would only come about likely through or it would likely only come about after a pretty terrible conflict mm-hmm. um i there's the, the chinese government the mainland governments has really invested much of its legitimacy in the public's eye in really two things, right? Now, the rather the communist era, it's still a communist party, but like we're in like the sort of like the post Mao era. Um, one is economic stewardship, so that their legitimacy, the two pillars, economic stewardship. They are the party that's going to that is that it has been and will continue to guide the Chinese Chinese people and the Chinese economy towards modern or you know sort of affluence and and continued modernization and. Um, so that's one big pillar, and the argument is that if you had another party in place, another government, we would not reap all the benefits. We would not be able to have all the benefits that we have because of what, how we, the Communist Party, were able to kind of steward the economy into this, like you know, this miraculous growth period. The other pillar, though, is nationalism, and central to that is Taiwan. If the Communist Party, and this is just to explain why I think that first scenario is is unlikely, if the Communist Party, the Communist Party is, has really, I think, indoctrinated. The population to believe that and the population believes this too but i mean I think they've really helped amp that up like indoctrinated over decades that taiwan is an inseparable part of china and so if taiwan declared independence and the communist party failed to uh to stop that then it would be the end of the communist party i think i mean it, the the public backlash of a government the government not being able to stop that from happening or let's say leading a military military uh, operation and failing, I think that would create all sorts of problems for the Communist Party. So I think they're in a situation where they've they don't even have a choice at this point. They would have to act forcefully in some way. It doesn't have to be a military course, course of operation, but it could be you know some something else. I don't know what that would be. I mean, embargoing islands is really hard, but like you know something else would be really hard, right? They have to be done something coercive. But so I think like to your question about that scenario. Um, I think maybe the other question maybe is like if this dispute didn't exist anymore or maybe you know there's a whole slew of scenarios right like maybe Taiwan eventually just succumbs to China's economic power and becomes part of China or maybe in a far off universe China becomes democratic and if China became democratic and multi-party then Taiwan would gladly I think become re- re- return back to you know rejoin with the with the, the mainland government um, unlikely, but that would be, you know, certainly, and that's been something Taiwanese government or leaders have said, was like, yeah, we'll join if you allow for multi-party. If you allow like the DPP and the KMT to function like normal parties in the multi, you know, a plurality economics, a plural, plurality economic system, or political system, then them will rejoin. So, but setting all that aside, um, if I were, I, I think it would change to the extent that, I don't mean to digress, sorry. No, no, that's but, fine. But, um, Just getting back to your main question, I think the impacts, and this is just purely speculation, is that right now, if if you are someone—not you, but I mean figuratively—right, if you are someone who's deeply concerned about the rise of China and deeply concerned about the much broader expansionary aims of the of the Communist Party and or just China, um, not just in not just in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait, but all across Asia Pacific, the Western Pacific, and then even going to Indian Ocean and Africa and elsewhere. If you're deeply concerned about that, then you would be concerned because about the resolution of the Taiwan issue because that's become such a focal point where China has to invest so much of its energy on Taiwan, and it potentially diverts their attention from maybe these broader hegemonic goals that they seek to, re- they seek to pursue. Um, that's if you think that, right? And I, I'm not sure that China wants to become the, the preeminent global power. I think they want to become a global power, but maybe not the preeminent like global hegemon, right? But a lot of people in DC think that. And that's the big concern is that you know China has these much bigger ambitions. They often point to like China has a military base now in Africa, in Djibouti. Um, they've taken control of a port in Sri Lanka. Well, we can talk about that. And it's largely, I think, misunderstood what they did. but um, people view that in the Belt and Road Initiative, which that was part of the Belt and Road Initiative, has reached tentacles of investments all across the world, spreading soft power influence and potentially other kind of hard influence as well. So I think if you really believe that China is out to be an expansionary power, and then you you think, well, Taiwan's a great distraction, right? Because that means they're going to focus all their attention on Taiwan. Um, In the same way, I've heard people describe Ukraine as... You know, a great way to kind of concentrate Putin's energies on Ukraine instead of maybe some broader ambitions he might have, which, you know, so, um, yeah, so that's my, yeah.
0: So, not, not to compare China and Russia, but, you know, back with the Soviet Union, they they invaded like Hungary, put troops in Czechoslovakia, invaded mm-hmm. Afghanistan. I mean, it, now Russia have people, they had people in Syria, the Crimea, all that stuff, now invaded Ukraine. I'd be wrong, but has China in, actually invaded anyone like in recent years, like the last 50 years? They haven't invaded anyone, ever? No, I mean, the
1: last time, in fact, China even had a, a hot conflict was 1979. And it was against Vietnam. And it was, it was purely to, it was largely just to punish Vietnam, mm-hmm. right? So they have, there was some modest you know, sort of border dispute, but it was really about the fact that China had sided with, with the Khmer Rouge and Vietnam had invented, invaded Cambodia to remove uh, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge from power. And China took that as an affront. So they wanted to go into Vietnam, in North Vietnam, and just um, just punish them, and they didn't actually perform that well. Um, you know, the not that the Vietnamese army was was necessarily better equipped, but I mean, they had a lot more Soviet technology, but um, they had seen a lot more recent action, obviously. Yeah, they had so, experience fighting us all those years. Yeah, they had much more much more experience fighting us. They had seen even more recent action in Cambodia, and so um, you know, I think that the. They actually, Chinese get actually, they'll claim that they, they, you know, Deng Xiaoping was the paramount leader at the time and claimed that they achieved their goals, right? But it was really more of just a statement. And I think if you look, you know, the numbers and the casualty rates, I mean, they actually didn't perform that well and there was really no meaningful dip change. Um, but to send a statement, you know, kind of slap them, you know, and say, um, because China has long viewed themselves as the sort of, that's within their sphere of influence. And Vietnam had actually been kind of a vassal state for many for many centuries um, during like, you know, the Ming dynasty and earlier. And so I think that that goes back to your question, actually your point before about your question about the longevity of Chinese history. Um, it does inform a lot of geopolitics in that way too, and how they've used Vietnam as at the time as a vassal, had been, you know, a vassal state, for instance, um, in earlier eras, but so, yeah, I think they don't have. They haven't done anything. I mean, they've been part of peacekeeping missions, which has actually been they've been encouraged to do that by the U.S. and our allies because we want you know are like okay China like you keep talking the big you keep talking like a, a the you know the, this big game about how you want to be a global you know a global power. Well, global powers go send peacekeeping troops or part of a UN mission, you know, and they or you know they do things like that. So they've been trying to be a little more active in that
0: space, um, but they haven't actually yeah invaded anyone I don't think so. so and i'm thinking man can you think if you like this like a regular vietnam vietnamese person you're like man we just fought the u.s the like the global war power and now you tell me four years later we gotta, gotta fight yeah. china now like can you give me a break like what's going on here mm-hmm.
1: yeah well i and you know i mean the um yeah i mean like the you know in the vietnamese like you know yeah i mean china you know it's yeah i think it's never ending, I suppose. Like, yeah. So I mean, I was, if, if it continued to speed, it's going forward too. I mean, and now the South China Sea is, is of course a big cont- area of contention with them.
0: In the South China Sea, didn't like China make like, for lack of a better term, like fake islands in there or mm-hmm. something? Or Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's the Scarborough Shoal and the Spratley's are a few other locations. Um, um, so there's these archipelagos um, in the South China Sea and atolls. And so there was a, so China has long claims um. That they should have control of those different sort of like you know those I wouldn't call them island chains because they're not islands they're either atolls or but um, they've long claimed and it's largely part of it's driven by natural resources there are supposedly um, significant deposits you know of oil and in other minerals in the South China Sea but more importantly it's the busiest sea lane in the world and you know the South China Sea I forget the numbers but it's it's what it's it's if not the busiest, one of the busiest um, you know, for cargo ships in the world. Um you got the Straits of Malacca at one end, you've got, you know, all these different, you know, sources for production on the other. And so, um, and for a long time and still, like the US provides rights, you know, like open sea sort of protects like, you know, rights of passage and maintains sort of like, you know, the the sort of US maintains security still. Um and I think China really I think They have a grudge about that, or they, that's feeds into it is they want to be the ones who they view that as an um, encroachment on China's traditional sphere of influence. Um, the and so there have been a lot of, but his there even well for decades now, there have been a lot of disputes with other countries, especially the Philippines, no lesser than Vietnam and Malaysia, about um who has control of the South China Sea, and they've all you know have competing claims three different atolls and, and regions of the South China Sea, and within their economic exclusive economic zone, which I think is like 200 miles from your shore, and
0: there's like a high percentage of trade go to the China Sea? Oh, sorry, like, There's like a high tr- percentage of trade go yeah. to China Sea?
1: Well, as I'm saying, like it's one of the busiest sea lanes in the world, um, if not the busiest thing, it's actually the busiest um like sea lane in the world because of all the cargo ships that are moving back and forth through there. Um, there's been disputes over fishing rights. Um, you know, China is exhausted um, its fisheries, largely exhausted, its fisheries in the East China Sea and elsewhere. So the South China Sea is like still, you know, a place where there could be a lot of fish. There's a lot of fishing that happens and a lot of the disputes that have happened or, or flare ups have been between Chinese coast guard that have been patrolling the South China Sea and like a Philippine fishing vessel, for instance. Um, so yeah, China has, there was a ruling in 2016 at the Hague. Um, I'm forgetting, it's the, it's basically, it's the international, it's a, it's a, it's a tribunal. It's in a court for maritime, maritime court for um, oceanic maritime claims. And it's just that China basically just completely ignored it. So the ruling said, this was an, in The Hague, um, ruling said that in 2016, that China, um, their rights are unfounded or their claims that South China are are unfounded. Um, it needs to remain open. Um, and the, you know, the, there are more, grounded rights, um, Philippines and others. Um, but China just ignored it. They said, well, whatever. And they just went in and started building these artificial islands. And they haven't just built them, but they've also now militarized them, which is the bigger concern. So it's not just that they built these artificial islands, but now there's an airstrip on it where
0: they're moving military aircraft on and off. So um, that is- well, Which, which in theory make it easy for them to strike different countries in the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So China, is obviously, as a, as a communist country, we're capitalists. So, talk some of the advantages and disadvantages of both systems, right? So, like, example, like, I know, like, during recovery, first started this thing all over the internet, where like the Chinese government, like, built all these hostels within days. The mm-hmm. United States seemed like it takes 10 years just to make one one sidewalk, right? Yeah. But but then, like, so just talk about how, like, that, that works, right? Like, is like in the United States, we're like more, you know, spontaneous, more entrepreneurial. So like mm-hmm. China's more like top down and like more resources, the government and business are more tied together here in the United States. Like it's like business and government are kind of at each other's next, so to speak, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Okay. For one. Yeah. Uh, always the case. I support capitalism over communism. Um, I think that so with China, so a lot of people point to like, you know, these, you know, rapid escalation construction of bridges and infrastructure and buildings. But um, I think, so two things. One, when we see these big skylines in Shanghai, for instance, like in the Pudong district, we should re- still remember that the vast majority of that real estate is held by state enterprises. So these are large state conglomerates that are run by the Communist Party through what's called the State-Owned Assets Supervision um, Administration Commission, which is how they control um, at multiple levels of government control state assets. So it's, these are still, these are not necessarily like the government building lots of stuff that then the private sector can take advantage of. Right. So that's one point Two is that, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, and okay. So in extreme, like, like in the U S like, if you want to build a, like a roadway, right. Um, In China, like, you know, in the U S we have, eminent, you know, we have people have property rights, right. We have protections. Like you can't just, the government can't just say, well, you know, we're going to build this road and we don't care that your house is in the middle of it. You just get to, you have to get up and leave and here's some, you know, some very limited compensation for it. But historically in China, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to overstate it, but that's, you know, that's often been the case is that people don't have property rights in the way that we have in the U S so yeah, it takes a lot more, you know, there's a lot more litigation. It costs a lot more money to build stuff in the U S especially infrastructure. Um, The worst of it is like you know the the efforts to build a high speed train through California, right? Which they spent what five billion dollars already and got nothing out of it, and just killed it because it's you know that's all like basically engineering and legal fees. But the flip side is like, well, do we want to live in a society where the government can just decide? Like there is no voice for citizens, right? There's no way to oppose or to challenge the government in a meaningful way, and so. In some areas, like, yeah, that kind of command control economy would be beneficial when it comes to things like climate change. Um, when it comes to trying to address like these big, what I would consider like, you know, market failures where you have like the market cannot solve problems. Um, and only the state can solve it because the market is simply in, in, unable to solve these issues or these challenges or these collective action problems. <laughs> Um, but the flip side then is like, well, do you want to live in a society where the government can just completely ignore your property rights or not even recognize you have property rights? Um, so there's a the difference. And a lot of the, you know, part of it too is because the Ch- Chinese society is still, I mean, when we go to China and you see, when you go to China and you see like all the gleaming skyscrapers and you see all the vibrancy in the consumer culture, it, at first glance, it's like, oh, they've embraced capitalism. But... Only to a degree like, you know, people, the government still has a lot of control over what one would consider like sort of the factor inputs or, or, you know, key sort of production inputs in an economy. So, you know, government still controls through various institutional mechanisms, control where, you know, where you can live. Um, it's really hard to, they have what's called a household registration system, which makes it really hard to move to a different city. Um, that's why we have all these like you know, migrants. And we've seen hundreds of millions of migrants that are in the cities working in factories, but don't actually, are not actual legal residents, even as much as they'd like to be legal residents of those cities. They eventually have to go back to their home village. Um, the government still heavily controls the finance system. You know, like all these big banks, like ICBC, which is Industrial Commercial Bank of China, was at, at one time, was the biggest IPO in history. But still, the government controls 51% of it. Um, so, they still follow what the government dictates about how to, you know, their lending practices. And so, and same for land, like no one, people don't own land in China, right? If you live in a village and a collective is what it's called, um, the collective owns the land technically, which is run by a village party, a village um, party secretary and village committee. Um, and then when that land is converted to urban land, so they tear down, you know, your dwellings, they rip up the farm, they build a skyscraper, and then you get some sort of compensation. Um, that land underneath the skyscraper is owned by the state. So when the government controls all those things, um, it's much easier to basically go and, you know, be able to build these really top-down directives about how to, you know, build bridges. So
0: So next question, is is like the talent level of the U.S. government and China government different? What I mean, like in in the United States, people (laughs) like Elon Musk, Steve (laughs) Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, they're not a government. They're like entrepreneurial or doing stuff out, different stuff. Mm -hmm. So I... I mean, better way say it's like a best and brightest ongoing on government, right? So, mm-hmm. like average people are in the government. Is the best and brightest and the best talent in China actually in the government and making these, mm-hmm. these decisions? That's a
1: good question. I think that used to be the case. Um, so, in the pre reform era, the best jobs, the best opportunities for per- professional growth were in the party. Um, ever since the reform era, that continued to, to broaden. So that now you're seeing a lot of really... There's a lot of talent in China. I mean, and not just people who are educated overseas. Like people, China has some top tier universities now. Um, they've got lots of d- in domestic talent in the tech sector, in you know the auto sector with electric vehicles, in clean energy, in all sorts of medical devices. Like So there's a lot of manufacturing. Like, there's a lot of great... And there's a lot of really entrepreneurial people in China. Like there's, there's the Jack Ma's of China, right? Or like the Pony Ma, um, you, know, who, you know, and who runs Tencent and like, and so forth. And so um, you've got really, really impressive Chinese companies that compete with, you know, all these, like, you know, many of these U.S. companies. I think the difference is that, you know, there's a bit more encroachment and infusion of the party into the private sector. And that, I think, compromises sometimes the entrepreneurialism of a lot of these people. And that's become the the government's been making more of a push to reassert itself into these different industries in the last couple of years. And so I think that's kind of potentially compromised some entrepreneurialism. It's also had the effect too that um, when the government tried to clamp down, because the the banking sector is still very very heavily skewed towards lending money to state enterprises. And so a lot of entrepreneurs who want to start companies often have to go to what's called the shadow banking sector or sort of like the less, the unregulated or much less regulated banking sector or credit, credit markets, which mean higher interest rates, which mean less, you know, oversight, a lot more risk on the part of the borrower and the lender. And so when the government really cracked down on the shadow banking sector, because how unregulated it was in the last few years, that really helped to further dry up capital available for entrepreneurs. So China's got lots of talent, but the entrepreneurial space is a lot more difficult to operate in, I think, than in the U S.
0: So Spencer, um, the trade deficit, is that something we really, really, really should be worried about? And then should we be worried about, they say like everything's made in China or is that just mm-hmm. the way globalization is nowadays. And we should be concerned about those two things.
1: Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of confusion, not confusion, but there's been a lot of mischaracterizing uh, of and. and about what a trade deficit is and then also what are the risks of a trade deficit. So first thing is like, when we talk about a bilateral trade deficit, right? Like U S China trade deficit, that's not really how trade happens anymore. In other words, like, you know, trade is a multilateral activity It involves many parties, many countries. Um, If you look at the share of net exports as a share of China's GDP, it's actually not that large. The reason being is that so much, even though China's a major exporter to the US, so many of the, they're, uh, what they do is they do fi- mostly final assembly. So all of the different parts that go into like an iPhone, right, come from like South Korea, Japan, Germany, Australia, I mean, all different places. So to think about, you know, so in, in you no, know, back in the day, right, like a century ago, trade was much more of a mercantilist activity where it was all about, we had the gold reserve, you know, the, we had the, you know, we're using like, you know, like gold, you know, the, the gold standard and like countries were much more mercantilist and focused on, and it was less sort of complicated of a supply chain. Nowadays, trade is incredibly multilateral, incredibly diverse and diffuse. Um, and so focusing on a bilateral trade deficit, which is what the Trump administration often pointed to, I think, because it was like so easy to point to that and say, look, it's getting worse. I think sort of um largely was misleading I think it was misleading because I don't think bilateral trade deficits are are now overall trade deficits are still important, but bilateral trade deficits have lost a lot of their meaning in the discourse on international trade, and so you know thinking about what and so that part of it I think is is misleading, so we shouldn't be thinking about that in that way. What was your second question? I'm sorry about the Oh, the, um, you said about trade and then trade deficit. And then, and
0: then, if we consider that they seem like they make everything over there.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the other thing, too, it just real, it, with bilateral trades is like, it's not as if, you know, it's, it's not as if when we have a trade deficit with China, we're getting nothing out of it, right? We get an iPhone, right? <laughs> like, we're getting something. It's not like we're just like giving them money, right? We're getting physical goods in return. So, that's another thing I think is often left out. Yeah, and we're not going to stop buying stuff anytime soon as Americans, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of stuff that, that is produced, and I'm, I'm not, now to be clear, right? So China has definitely manipulated our trade relationship over time. Um, they did it for a long time um, through currency manipulation to make the RIM and B cheaper. Um, so their exports are more competitive. Um, but they've also done it through other means, to other mechanisms, industrial subsidies, all kinds of policies to retain a lot of that, that you know, the foreign direct investment. Um, so they can re- they can learn how to do it right. They can attract foreign investments. They can learn how to make those products and then begin to do it themselves. And that was one of the biggest gripes. Was you know all the way through the period was like China was doing that to, to attract FDI, but then China was also um, more later, more more recently, trying to implement policies that would strip away the protections around trade secrets or intellectual property rights. Um, they tried at one point to compel. U.S. or foreign companies to have to go into joint ventures um, for in certain areas and have to disclose their, their intellectual property with their JV partner. So there are always concerns about these sort of industrial policies aimed at trying to take away the sort of know-how and, and internal sort of knowledge and intellectual property that was so essential to a lot of these companies. But yeah, I think like, you know, so that is a concern. Um, but yeah, I mean, like we, we you know, if China, if, if more manufacturing leaves China, it's not going to come back to the
0: U.S. No, no, I think people yeah. don't get that. It's not coming back here. Yeah, it's not coming back. Like, I would go to Vietnam or somewhere else, right? People, people will point, and if it does come back, the employment
1: footprint is going to be much smaller. You know, it's only going to come back to the U.S. if it's, if it's going to be highly automated. If you had a hundred Chinese workers, reducing that down to like maybe ten U.S. workers, and that commit those ten workers oversee like five robots of pieces, yeah. like that, right? Yeah, so it's not it's not going to come back. I mean, it's some of it will, depending on what it is, and some areas that you know this is where like supply chains get inter- overlap or right? intersect with national security. So there are certain areas that the Biden administration has called out um, for special attention. Um, around national security, and Trump administration did this to some extent too, but I think it's becoming more institutionalized and formalized under Biden, identifying those key areas where we want to make sure that we have that capacity. Because for a long time, you know, we, did, we, were, we had basically outsourced so much of our manufacturing capacity that it actually became eventually perceived to be a national security risk. Um, so that became a concern, or at least wanted to see those move those supply chains become either redundant or diversified into countries that we're much closer with like Australia, Japan, Canada, and so forth, the UK, um, France, other, other European partners. So that part of it, I think is, is become much more of a concern is how do we address the national security concerns? And you saw it too, with like COVID. I mean, we don't think about masks as like a national security asset, but it actually became one. Right. And where, who produces vast majority of, 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 masks in the world and medicine we found out and yeah ph- like generic pharmaceuticals or the ingredients that go into generic pharmaceuticals like yeah china so that was a big that was also a big concern so you know i think like um i think that's where maybe the meal is going to move um and a lot of that other manufacturing we talked about it's going to leave china at some point or some of it will but it's going to go like you said to like vietnam to malaysia maybe to like mexico um China is also not cheap anymore. You know, China, that's another factor is like China's facing demographic challenges. They've exhausted that cheap labor supply that they always kind of had the benefit of. China went from like, you know, at the, the at, right in the precipice of joining the WTO in 2001, Chinese labor was about 26 times cheaper than the US. Now it's only four times cheaper. Um, so a lot of companies that now, if you're, if you're a company that, if you're like Tesla, for instance, you're also aiming to sell into the domestic market. And plus, there's a lot of stickiness, right? Once you're invested in a factory, it's hard, there's a lot of inertia that's hard to move that. And China has also built out all the port infrastructure, all other kinds of roadways infrastructure to help move those products and has built up the ecosystem of suppliers too um, for certain types of products. And if you're selling to the Chinese market, but if you're a company that makes a, you know, let's say like a, a high labor intensive, low tech product that is not, Is is very commoditized and it's not, you know, dependent on the Chinese domestic market as well. Like, let's just make up like socks, right? Not to not to besmirch what they do in Vietnam, right? But I mean, just like low cost textile production, you could go to Vietnam to a degree. Now, Vietnam doesn't have the 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 absorption capacity that China has. No country has the absorptive capacity China has. But you could diversify Vietnam, India. I mean, depends on the infrastructure. Malaysia at some point for those kinds of products, but those are on the margins. I still think a lot of it will stay, but some will diversify.
0: Yeah. I, I know quite a few people have like stores, at Amazon marketplace and their factories are in China. They go to China like once or twice a mm-hmm. year, no receivers. I a lot of people do that. Yeah. So from your point of view, does the U S and China look at, each other, look at each other as, as friends, foes or just like high level competitors on the world stage? I'd say like high level
1: competitors, um, you know, like no, the, the big concern is like so high-level competitors, um, and that's becoming increasingly sort of like formalized, so to speak, or crystallized um, through recent actions like the trade war, and then the Biden administration sort of you know really is that the Trump administration was like quite haphazard and chaotic in how they approached dealing with China. The trade war was not well thought out, in my opinion. Um, it largely hurt us more than it hurt China in many respects, and also also. It hurt our partners, or trade partners, and I think it um, all of the really unfortunate, really nasty rhetoric. You know that that you know like racial epithets and like just lots of really just ugly rhetoric that was really kind of really unfortunate. Um, but I think that the core of the the Trump administration policies is now being kind of formalized by the Biden administration. So we're moving in that direction of becoming much more sort of like adversarial, at least economically. Um, you're seeing that with what's called the, the, the entity list, which is essentially export control so, or prohibition on exports. So it prohibits companies on the entity list, like Chinese companies of certain, in certain areas. U.S. companies are prohibited from doing business with them. Um, you're seeing those kind of actions take place, um, especially in the tech space. So there's definitely going to be a growing rivalry economically. There already is, but a growing rivalry economically with China Um, you're also seeing the formation of alliances. I mean, this is where it kind of you look at, you know, if there was like a NATO equivalence, there is no NATO equivalent now in the Asia-Pacific, but there's sort of the antecedents to that or the early kind of like, you know, green shoots of that, right? It's where you see like, you know, AUKUS, which is like this new sort of alliance of US, UK, and Australia, largely around the submarine deal, but also more broadly about sort of defense posture. The the one that pissed France off. Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. And that France, yeah. I mean, I think if they were, they'd be pissed off anyways. But I think that they were offering an inferior product to begin with, and over a much longer time frame, that was not. It was it was not relevant, or it was it was less, it was increasingly, like um, I don't see obsolete, mm-hmm. but it was incre- increasingly less less useful compared to like nuclear submarines, <laughs> right? And what we hope to achieve in our objectives in the asia Pacific. Um, so I understand why Australia wanted to get the nuclear submarines and not the diesel ones from France, but um, still, yeah, the the it was not handled as it wasn't as handled as well as it should have been. Yeah, but but that and also, oops, um, you know, the Quad, which is this alliance, um, quasi alliance between like U.S., Australia, India, and Japan, which was pretty dormant for a long time and was sort of like this various sort of ceremonial kind of really didn't have a lot of teeth to it is now beginning to become a little more crystallized or have more formalized and institutionalized with like you know like with meetings like structured meetings and, and a timetable so um i think those in japan self-defense force is beginning to japan's beginning to reassess right it's um how it wants to use its you know the sort of its constitutional limitations on how it can project its it's you know its military So, you're seeing a lot of this sort of begin to form. And I think China's quite worried about that as well is what if there was a NATO type structure in Asia Pacific? And how would China respond to that? Um, You know, because of concerns China has about being of of containment is often a a phrase used by Chinese. And so, um, yeah, I think that there's, um, where's it going with that? Um, Anyway, sorry. Uh, Yes, I think that there is a growing um, adversarial. Um, I hope, I don't think it, I think everyone, like, well, okay, let me put it this way. I'd like to think that policymakers in DC appreciate and understand the risks of conflict. But then I hear people in DC, like in the last couple of weeks, calling for implementing a new fly zone in Ukraine, right? And I'm like, okay, well, maybe they're not as, maybe they forgot a few things. Like, Yeah, it's, and it's, that's, it's easier said than done. And that, that's more like, you know, like, I mean, we're all obviously like really, you know, just horrify what's happening in Ukraine. It's like, no, we're not going to open up an opportunity for like U.S. aircraft and Russian aircraft to get into combat, right? It's like going to go
0: into combat, right? Like, no, that's that would be awful. That would be, the, the servers are going to say, "Oh, there's a U.S., there's a NATO project. Uh, right. Let's Let back away. Go, yeah. Let's back away. That's not going to happen." So you hear people
1: like that in in DC, in DC, or elected officials in DC talking about this, and you're like, okay, well, I should re I should reevaluate my assumptions about. How cognizant people are in important positions about, you know, our risk with China, yeah. right? And the risk of conflict with China. Because that's something where we most definitely don't want to get. I mean, again, because nuclear powers, I mean, two largest militaries in the world now, no. Like, yeah. I mean, good thing about the
0: US, anyone can get elected to Congress. The bad thing, anyone can get elected to right, Congress. Right, right, right,
1: exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So who are the allies of China? Well. I mean, like they'll go to like we can always count on Britain, of course, and Australia. Yeah. Like, who can China count on? And, and and not counting North Korea, of course. But do they have any allies? They say, "Hey, we're about to go do something. You have our back." I'd say it's
1: maybe the other way around. More, um, there are countries that assume that China has got their back in some ways, um, like Russia. <laughs> Although there's a lot of questions now about the how robust despite the fact that they made that declaration right before the olympics Mm -hmm. on february 4th about the limitless relationship the limitless friendship and alliance how that's already kind of proving potentially be a real big headache for the prc um so but certainly you know i think you know pakistan and china have had a long history Mm -hmm. um pakistan arguably got the technology for the bomb from china um and they have, but I think that a lot of um, in North Korea, but North Korea is, again, like, China China has this long-standing relationship with North Korea. They fought for North Korea, right? There are many Chinese soldiers that died in Korea. Um, so North Korea is kind of like this little brother to China, but they're also a really irascible. Incorrigible, the little brother, little brother they brother. keep
0: down the basement, hidden away.
1: But banging on pots and pans yeah. the whole time when you're trying to sleep, right? Yeah. Like, they're just this incorrigible, like, right? Just, like, very, like, difficult and and can cause a lot of problems but you know that they, they do have this it's almost like an obligation um there's political systems despite but they're both still leninist party structures and leninist political systems but they're so divergent in terms of people's consumerism and rights and abilities I mean, north korea is like china in the 1960s i mean north korea is so far behind um and they become a headache so it's not as if China can count the North Korea, right? It's the other way around. Like North Korea depends on China Mm -hmm. and what really, including actual shipments of grain and fuel over the the Yalu River. And so um, I think that like, maybe this is me being idealistic, like, because maybe I'm not a realist, right? I'm not, I'm more of an idealist in some ways, but I think that the U.S., has like, and we have lots of warts, obviously, and imperfections, right? Lots of problems in the US, but we have the best, we have the best form of governments in the world still. And despite all our problems and how that's being challenged, but like, and we have this like in Western alliance, I think despite all our differences with our allies, um, we have the, we have like a big idea, right? Like there's a unifying, unifying concept, right? Which is democratic institutions. Um, you know, belief in basic human rights. And we, we we don't always abide by that, right? But at least we have like that, that is a transcending idea, right? China doesn't have a big idea, right? Like China doesn't have this idea, like, I mean, China has authoritarianism, right? And it's increasing authoritarian autocratic, you know, sort of Leninist party structure. Um, what did China and Russia really have in kind, right? They used to be enemies, right? Yeah, they they fought that. each other, yeah. right? And they almost went to nuclear war with each other. Um, in like the 1960s and early 70s so like you know china so what they have in common is that they both have an adversary relationship with the u.s um what are my enemies are our friend or something yeah, like yeah that. yeah what 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 is pakistan china, what do the pakistan and china have in common right they both have a uh something to, especially with china adversary relationship with india right they both share a lot of border with india um so they have that that connection right so i think that like China's relationships with its allies are much more sort of like transactional and much more fungible. Whereas like, I feel like, you know, the U S and again, with all the warts, all the problems we have, right. And we don't have to go through all of them, right. But like, we have some sort of, like, there's a, there's a, a salience in our relationship with like the UK, with France, with Canada, I mean, just kind of Australia, um, with Japan that is, I think much more robust.
0: Than what China has with its allies, so and so I could be making this up. I remember reading somewhere, you know, that China doesn't want Korea, no, North and South Korea to go to war because the South Korea wants to have like a democratic nation on their border. Mm-hmm. The, really, yeah. the main reason they don't want this because all the refugees that would go from North Korea to China. Both, yeah, both, both reasons. Both.
1: I mean, you know, there's I, the last I, I haven't seen a number, uh, an updated number, but I remember like you know, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, there were hundred thousand. North Korean refugees in Manchuria, northeast China. Um, The border at the time was quite porous. I've been to the border. It's very easy if you really want to. I'm sure not easy, but it's it's at the time. um, You know, there's a there's a large population. So China has 56 different so-called ethnicities, officially sanctioned um, or recognized ethnicities, including the Han Chinese, and then all these other groups like Manchus, Hui, Tibetan, Uyghur, and so forth, uh, Zhuangzu, and so forth, and so um there's what's called like the chaoxin and chaoxin are like the the ethnic koreans that live in china they're chinese citizens they speak mandarin but they're ethnically korean so there's a big population of ethnic koreans in places like Shenyang, which is like the big biggest metropolis in in manchuria so you have lots of north korean refugees that find sanctuary illegally in northeast china um if the korean If the North Korean regime collapsed, oh, yeah, you would have a huge, you'd have a humanitarian crisis for one, which is, you already have a humanitarian crisis, but, you know, it would really branch out. You'd have lots of refugees that would flee to mainland China. Um, You'd also have, like you said, you'd have a unified Korea that would be a U.S. ally. Um, So you could potentially, you know, I don't think you'd have U.S. troops permanently or at all, right? I mean, you, you might even actually have U.S. I mean, it's possible you could even see U.S. troops leave South Korea um, if, once the, if that happened, right? And there was unification, peacefully, or any kind of unification, right? When the North Korean threat was no longer there. But um, yeah, hopefully there we're was, not, yeah, yeah,
0: hopefully we're not dumb enough to put troops in the former North Korea if
1: that happened, right? No, no. Yeah, that would, that would be highly—I mean, we've, we've put troops near the Chinese border once before. And it didn't work out very well. No, no it did not. So I think they would react in a similar fashion. Maybe not exactly the same, but they would equally be quite apprehensive. There would be some type of repercussions. Yeah. So, so like you know, I think, um I think yeah, those are the two biggest issues. And then you know, there's also like just the utter. I mean, it's really worrisome, right, that North Korea has nuclear, we- nuclear weapons. But if if the Kim regime fell, and where do those weapons go? I mean, that just that alone, the chaos about where those weapons go and who has them, and you know, China doesn't want some crazy, you know, sort of like, you know, rogue element in the North Korean military just to lob a nuke into Seoul, which they could, right? I mean, and there's almost no time, right? I mean, it, Seoul's what, 30 miles from the DMZ? Yeah, yeah. So. I was
0: actually stationed for three years with was my family, that, yeah. family yeah. in Seoul. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's right there. The, mm-hmm. the plan was always, you no, know, they'll probably, you know, knock us out the first couple of days and then we go back and get them right. But yeah, there's, because once lost, there's nowhere to stop them. I mean, it's, Well, even the conventional weapons could
1: flatten Seoul, right? Yeah, I mean, easily. it's so it's
0: close. The if, the yeah. yeah. So if you want,
1: yeah, I mean, some rogue, I mean, I don't think China wants that kind of conflict on its border, right? I don't think or so it's, in, its, in its vicinity in general. So I think status quo is ideal. Yeah. That, that's the problem with a lot <laughs> of this. Probably, stuff not, is, probably not
0: ideal for the North Korean people, though, right? <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe long run, but not immediate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's quo for them. Yeah. Definitely not. But that's the thing everybody wants status quo, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants status quo, but um, you know we're never change going to bring might think change would be a good thing, but it might be a bad thing. Yeah, and sometimes you know we think we're trying to maintain the status quo and then something happens we didn't anticipate. I mean there were other periods of history where we had a disruptive emergent power come on the scene right around like in 1914, mm-hmm. right and yeah. so um, and that's often I don't think it's a perfect analogy, but that's often the analogy that that's most frequently brought up is you know, the rise of Germany pre-World War One, and sort of, you know, German investment, like challenging the British Navy and like all, you know, that all that is the most common analogy people invoke when they talk about China's
0: rise. What, uh, is the U.S. and China in any of the same free trade agreements?
1: Well, we're both part of the WTO. Okay. So we're not in a free trade agreement with China. We still have tariffs. And, um,
0: and they have, I think, called so favor nation status or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so
1: so, China, by virtue of being a WTO member, they have a permanent most favored nation status on
0: trade. And what um, does that do for a country? Like it lowers tariffs or something? or Yeah, it lowers tariffs.
1: Um, it's, you know, it's, it prior to, so prior to um, negotiations for the WTO, China's ex- extension to the WTO, um, the US every year had to renew China's most favored nation status. Um, and that has to do with like also trade standards and all kinds of like sort of, you know, like technicalities around trade between countries. So
0: if they're like a communist country and like quote unquote, like a competitor, why give them favorite nation status? It's like, it's kind of counterintuitive kind of to do that. Well, I think that, so the thinking,
1: and this has been flawed thinking, but the thinking back in the day was that, um, you know, we want, there was a belief that trade and economic integration would, Bring would would be would be uh which I think it has actually to be clear I, I don't think it's been entirely flawed but um right by in by bringing them in because China for a long time was a pariah state mm-hmm. right up until the 1970s right China was this pariah states right like they had very few normal normalized diplomatic relations they were causing you know they were they were they were disruptive in the global order they were sending you know they're just they were not part of the system right. So a lot of U.S. policy was like, okay, ideally, it would be great if China became a democracy. But we know that that's not that in the near term, that's not possible. And we're not in the, we don't want to get the business regime change anyways, right? So what's the best way to kind of bring China into the system to make them more predictable, to raise the cost of doing something that's divergence or potentially disruptive to the global economy or global order? Is is trade right? Economic integration it make it raises the stakes for any sort of action. It it brings them west. It also is a a vector for bringing Western ideas and ideas about democracy and about rights. Um, And it's just good policy for Chinese citizens, right? And that's kind of what the the goal was. And so there was the belief, even after Tiananmen in eighty nine, fast forward to the late nineties. This belief that, well, if we could, we're already, we're maintaining, we're renewing our most favored nation status as, as sort of like a, a lever, right? Because if we don't, China's economy is going to suffer, but they would renew it every year anyways. They never didn't renew it. So if we bring them to WTO, we bring in a new layer of institutions and rules and norms that China would have to abide by that makes it more predictable, makes it, and also gives it us more access to the Chinese market. Um, so it's good for everybody, right? Right. Um, I think that if you view it in that way, that's bringing in China, further integrating them to the global economy to raise the cost of any sort of divergent flare up or sort of, you know, like action that would be disruptive. And that was, it achieved, I think that, that end. Um, I think people have been dismayed in some corners in US policy corners, um, who are part of that, that sort of fervor and movement to get them in the WTO back in the day, because they thought that, well, this is going to reap even bigger dividends. Like there's the peace dividend and there's like the, the idea that China's could become more like us in the process and the communist party will become, you know, I don't say weaker, but it'll become much more open to different ideas and potentially, um, you know, a plurality at some point, or at least not, not a democracy, but at least some kind of pluralism. And that didn't happen. In fact, um, since 2012 with the ascent of, of Xi Jinping as the general secretary China's become actually arguably much more authoritarian, right? After a long period of sort of, you know, sort of, you know, like bureaucratization and, and, you know, of the party. So I think from that perspective, people thought, you know, it's been disappointing. But in the long run, I think still it's better to have them integrate
0: into the system, which is what we did, um, than not having them outside of it. I know about a month ago, I listened to Joe Rogan podcast. He had a general H.R. McMaster on there. Mm-hmm. And H.R. McMaster pretty much like laid out everything the general secretary did since 2012 to make it more authoritarian. Mm-hmm. So he did a pretty good job of laying it out, I think. Mm-hmm. So what, talk about China and Africa, right? Is that a dangerous thing? Or like people say they're, they're like, you know, the quote unquote, take advantage and take out all the resources and take advantage of the people there. What's your take on that? Yeah,
1: I mean, so the, the main sort of framework by which China um, get works in Africa through what's called the Belt and Road Initiative, which you've probably heard of, but it's China's, the BRI, it's like China's, it was started in 2013. It sort of fizzled a little, about, little bit in recent years, um, but it's kind of like like General Secretary Xi's like big pet pro- like project, right? It's part of his legacy. It's been enshrined now in the constitution and it's this whole idea. Um, so it's China's essentially um, answer to the World Bank and to like, you know, U.S. and Western powers like soft power. Now, now when and I say Africa, are they actually in every single country in Africa or just some countries? Uh, I don't, I'm sure they're in some, they're, I'm sure they're not in some countries. I don't think they're in every country, but they're quite active in Africa. It's mostly, so they have, so it's mostly through um, infrastructure investments. So through the, and it's mostly through the Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, China helped establish um, what's called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and then a few other institutions to kind of support infrastructure um, investments in the region. And then they broaden that with the Belt and Road Initiative 2 to cover Africa. Um, So China has made a lot of investments uh, in Africa, in in infrastructure, port developments, airports, roadways, bridges. But most of that is funded not through, through direct aid and grants, but through lending to those governments. So it begs the question about if these, you know, the World Bank arguably needs to be broader in scope, but if the World Bank is not willing to fund these projects, because perhaps at least in some cases, they're not economically viable, and then China comes in and says, we'll fund it, it creates a problem because because these are loans. If these are an economically viable product projects, then they're not going to yield the return on investment that's going to allow those countries to pay back China in a timely manner, or according to the, the original, you know, sort of like agreements, negotiate ne- agreements of the deal of the of the of the of the, of the debt. So there have been accusations that China is engaging in what's called debt trap diplomacy. I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. Where China will lend money, knowing that the recipient, borrower, cannot pay it back. And as compensation, they have to collateralize, as part of the deal to collateralize like the project itself or the land, and then China eventually seizes
0: it receivership of that,
1: that land, and then they use it for other purposes. Oh, so, or maybe
0: the person in power gets a whole lot of money
1: and they yeah. release power, the, the people of the country get hold, caught in hold the bag, so to speak. Yeah, there's, that happens. Um, the Port of Hemantota in Sri Lanka is sort of the poster child of that, where that and, and that one actually happened prior to the Belt and Road Initiative, but analysts, it got kind of rolled up into Belt and Road Initiative, and a lot of analysts point to that and say, this is a classic example of dead trap diplomacy, where Sri Lanka, want, the Sri Lankan government wanted to build a port. China funded it. They couldn't pay it back. China then seized the port under like a 99 year lease and now operates it. But even that one, I think, is misconstrued because I think that the Chinese didn't intend to seize that port. I think that there was a lot of corruption, is my understanding, in Sri Lanka. Um, and there was really even no need for a second port. Um, the port of Colombo was actually underutilized and it's going to be a competitor port, the port of uh, Colombo. And so it was was a wasteful decision on the part of the local governments or the the national governments to try to elicit Chinese investments and borrowing um, or sort of lending to them. So it was was, China kind of did not properly scrutinize the borrower and the project. And now they kind of are stuck with it, right? Because there's also concerns, well, because of China's bring rather of India, this could be a naval base in the Indian Ocean. I don't think that's the case. I could be wrong, but I I suspect that China kind of fell into it on this one. Um, But, you know, I mean, there are, that is a big concern. Like you said, Is like a lot of these, like, these projects are not being funded either, be, you know, maybe because by the World Bank, because they're not actually viable. Not that the World Bank has the best records per se on evaluating, right, and appraising projects, but like these are not products that wouldn't be economically viable and China's coming in, so it, it, right from the get-go, it's gonna be harder for the borrower to repay the debt. Or it's like, you know, there are other reasons, whether it's corruption or misguided sort of, you know, thinking on the part of the local governments that wanted this project. Either way, it's really messy. And I think, you know, and that's why I think China's actually, they, they saw it as a means of trying to expand their influence into these other parts of the world. And then China also was, you know, for under Mao, China saw itself as part of the, you know, like the leader of like the non alignment movement, you know, leader of like the third world, the developing world. Um, they saw themselves as really playing a pivotal role in that. And I think they still do. So being in Africa is kind of symbolically important to them. Because they do see themselves still as
0: like sort of like you know leading like you know the global south and being an important like player. So, Spencer, so the Belt Road Initiative is, is that like the pretty much like the second coming of what's called the Old Silk Road, like the kind of kind of same thing. Uh, I think they invoke that, but
1: um, ironically, the road is actually so. The, ironically, when the Belt and Road, the road refers to the sea lane. Okay, and then the belt refers to the overland, um, but. There, it's a whole mishmash. It's almost like a, it's a framework. It's an umbrella framework that almost anything can fall under. So a lot of state enterprises that are in the construction space or rail space will um, argue for the the vibe, with the importance of their product of the project overseas in the context of it's like, oh yeah, we want to do this, but it's because we're doing it because it's Belt and Road Initiative, which is what like Xi Jinping really cares about. So therefore, they get, you know, they they get the credit they need from the state banks to do it. Whereas if it was not in the they didn't frame it in the context of Belt and Road. Maybe they wouldn't get the money for that. Um, but it's so varied. I mean, you have these big corridors of investment. So you've got Africa, but then more importantly, arguably the most important corridor is what's called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, and that links because Pakistan, you know, borders China on the west, China's western western borders, and so they're trying to basically build largely supply energy supply lines overland. Um, from China, from Northeast, Northwest China to the port of Guadar in the Sea of Oman or Gulf of Oman. And so a lot of infrastructure investments are being installed to support those energy supply lines. And there's been a big backlash because a lot of even Pakistan, the, the current prime minister was like, you know, we don't need this. Like, I mean, I under- we understand, yeah, China wants to hedge its bets because they're worried about you know, if there ever was a conflict with the U.S., for instance, like U.S. controls the sea lanes, so they'd need overland supply of energy if there's any kind of, you know, partial conflict, whatever, or flare-up. But we need, you know, development is not just about building bridges. It's about human developments. It's about healthcare, you know, education, um, those kinds of things. So there's been a bit of a pushback
0: now, but that is, yeah, like what the, what it's generally about, so. So I know it seems like a lot of Chinese students go to American colleges, from what you can tell, your point of view, do, does the average Chinese citizen think highly United States? They think of like where places to go and make a better living. What's mm-hmm. like an average Chinese attitude on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think in general, I mean, you know, the average Chinese person, like they they don't think like the Communist Party. I mean, they're, they have the same sorts of aspirations that people around the world have. Um, many Chinese that come to school here, but they they like being here. They want to be here. Um, they enjoy the freedoms here. They also enjoy the economic opportunities here. Um, even though China's become a much more affluent country in recent years, there's still a lot more opportunity in the U S and a lot more freedom to do the pursue things they want to pursue in the U S. Um, so people, yeah, I mean, everyone that, you know, like my wife is Chinese. She likes it here. like, and she was a student, she was a student here. Um, but I think, you know, most people that come here really, I mean, the reasons they go back, I mean, they still, many people still have a strong sense of patriotism and, and love of their country. So they want to go back. Their family's still back there. They want to raise a family back in China. But a lot of people stay if they can. I mean, if there's opportunities. It's become a lot more difficult from an immigration standpoint in recent years. And there's also been, you've probably heard of the China Initiative, um, which was a program under the DOJ that really heavily scrutinized um, Chinese academics and researchers in the US and had a little tinge of McCarthyism in there. Um, they sort of basically shut down. shut down, but really heavily scaled back the program. Um, in fact, there's a really good article in the New Yorker about this, um, this month about it, about the, the, the China initiative that's worth reading, but, um, you know, really aggressive scrutiny of Chinese researchers, you know, kind of a deep seated suspicion that they're, they're, they're all spies. Alone. Yeah. They're all spies. They're all like, you know, transfer their research to, even though a lot of it's on un- completely unfounded, right. Or the think the cases they find are, are more an instance of negligence and just complete ignorance of the rules than actual like intentionality. Um, But there is that deep seated sort of, you know, excessive attention paid on Chinese researchers now and scholars and academics in the U S.
0: So change the subject a a little bit. Can you talk about what is economic impact modeling? Mm -hmm. So it's basically like
1: um, it's essentially like if you're, um, if you're a, in industry or any sort of economic activity, let's say like you're Boeing, right? It's like Boeing in Washington state, um, employs like 60,000 plus workers, 65, 70,000 workers. Um, economic modeling models the broader impacts on the economy of that activity. So you have like the, what's considered direct activities, which is your direct impact, which is Boeing, right? Let's say Boeing has 65,000 workers in Washington. That's your direct impact, 65,000 workers. But you might also want to know, well, what about the supply chain? What about all the upstream suppliers? Like when Boeing buys carbon fiber materials from a supplier or tooling equipment or hires like an engineering design service for a certain part in Washington state, um, that creates lots of other jobs in the economy. So we call that indirect. And then you also have all these workers that work at Boeing or work at their suppliers that go purchase household goods with that income they earned um, well employed, right? through this, these activities. So they might go buy their groceries, pay for gasoline, um, go dine out. And so all the jobs at restaurants and like you know grocery stores that are further supported. so that's what it is. It's kind of like this like ripple effect. We often talk, talk about like a multiplier. So there's a multiplier effect. Um, like for every one job at let's say Boeing, there's like a total of like two point five jobs across the economy that are somehow tied to Boeing either because they work at Boeing, or they're a supplier, or they are in an industry that Boeing employees
0: spend their money at. So So basically, if someone gets hired at Boeing, actually four people get hired because they can... But if someone gets laid off at Boeing, that means probably two or three other people get laid off too. Yeah,
1: you can look at it both ways. So when people talk about the economic importance of an industry, often for advocacy purposes, like they have a tax policy they're advocating for, um, or there's just some kind of... They want to really elevate in the eyes of legislators typically why this industry is important, they often turn to like an economic impact statement to evidence that.
0: So you, you've flown in Mandarin Chinese. Is it, is it, is it actually Mandarin Chinese or just Chinese or just Mandarin or? That's Mandarin. It, yeah. And is it as hard to learn as I'm thinking it was to learn? Uh, I mean, I was
1: never really good at languages, mm-hmm. but so I had to live in China to do that. Okay. Um, but once you live there, I think it's just the immersion. I mean, I took more formal training too, but um, it's, you have to because Mandarin is like really intonation based. So there are different tones and those tones kind of widely different meanings based on the tonality. So, you know, you have to kind of be there, at least for me, like I have to be there. I have to immerse myself and hear it all the time. And then, you know, and that's, that's, it's a language I think you have to really. And then of course, I think the added difficulty is just the characters. So it's a lot of memorization of characters. Um, unlike you know like you can't just look at a character and figure out like if you haven't recognized it right i mean there's some sometimes there's like you can kind of guess because it has like a like maybe the radicals different, but the main str- the main components is the same as another character so you can kind of guess how to pronounce it within a range but it's not like learning spanish right or any sort of like you know like you know alphabet you know romanized spanishized language and, and how often do you go to china not recently unfortunately yeah. um in fact the last time I went there was 2018. Okay. I and mean, you so.
0: go you go for like just a, a couple of weeks to do business, you
1: stay there for a while. Uh it ranges. Like I've been going back and forth since 2001. So I lived there for a while um to study the language and also um I did my doctoral fieldwork in China. So I did spent a lot of time there doing research. Um and I spent long stints as like a language student in China. do like, you know, formal programs. Um and then like my, as I mentioned, my wife's family's from China. So go back and visit family. Um, and then for some business too, some business trips. So yeah, just like, you know, it ranges. I've gone for a week and I've gone for like, you know, I've stayed for a, month, a year and a half. So it just just ranges. But I haven't, unfortunately, um, I would have gone in 2020, but then, you know, and then, I mean, I could go now possibly, potentially, but then I have to like, you know, if, if I only have two weeks and after quarantine for three weeks in China
0: in a hotel room, it's not really math doesn't work, right? So no, it, it does not doesn't work at all. Can you talk some about the supply disruptions going on right now across the world? Sure. Yeah. So,
1: um, you know, I think that there's been a lot of, um, so obviously everyone's like paying attention to it, but um, they're really a couple main drivers as I see it. Um, so you've got, you know, factory closure. So let me step back. So, In 2020, a lot of retailers in the U.S. um, decided to, did not, like, we live in a system, right? That's like just-in-time logistics. And so a lot of retailers in the margins really let their, even though they do maintain some inventories, they let those inventories dwindle because they had no certainty about what demand was going to look like, right? Because we're all, you know, we're all cloistered in our homes and like, you know, no one knows that this is going to be the end of the world, or like you know, so a lot of uncertainty. The first couple of months of COVID were like quite shocking. I mean, just the numbers, right? Like the the, the unemployment rates were just like abysmal and unprecedented, right? So it was, we're living in a new paradigm. And then, so a lot of retailers like let their inventories scale back or diminish, right? And then all of a sudden, and then you combine that with people's behavioral changes. That meant because then we got we people were made whole from the fiscal stimulus programs, right? And expanded unemployment insurance. So a lot of people were actually, in some cases, even getting more money, right, than they earned when they were working. And so people's spending power picked up again pretty quickly. So you had and then so people were able to spend, but they shifted because they couldn't go out to eat, and even if they could, right? Or do outdoors purchasing. Um, consumption like they were reticent or less less willing to do it all the time so people shifted their consumption more towards skewed more towards physical goods they would buy on like e-commerce platforms so you had this like behavioral shift in consumption and you had the retailers scaling back a bit um you know their inventories and then all of a sudden and on top of that you had um you know factory intermittent factory closures overseas um that create a lot of problems like in vietnam and china that really disrupted a lot of production. And so, and then all of a sudden, like retailers decided in 2021, they were ready to start building up their inventories again. Consumers had all the purchasing work, were shifting more and more their consumption to physical goods that were imported, right? As, as opposed to like, whereas you might've gone out to eat at a restaurant, you bought like some random device on Amazon instead, right? That was manufactured in Vietnam or China. And so that confluence of factors um, combined with a, a logistic system, a supply chain system that was incredibly fragile and had a lot of vulnerabilities. Like we had issues even going, going into the pandemic. We had truck driver shortages, especially long haul truck driver shortages, um, which are critical linchpin to the supply chain. I mean, you've got the drayage, which is the short, right? The ports shift moving the boxes from like the port to like a transloading facility. But then you've got the long haul drivers that have to bring them to like, you know, the distribution centers and like Walmart distribution centers and what have you. And there's a big shortage of those already. And those drivers were getting sick. Um, you also had limited warehouse space. And then so all it took was a little nudge, I think, to really knock the whole system out of, out of whack. And that's, like, that's what happens. Right? And then you get a ship stuck in the Suez Canal just to add a little bit of cherry on the Sunday. So all those things together... Um, really combined that confluence of factors, I think, on top of a very fragile system to begin with is what really caused all the backlogs where we saw, like, you know, 106 vessels either anchored or adrift waiting to be unloaded in San Pedro Bay then LA Long Beach, which is the biggest. Yeah, I, I mean, vessels. everyone's seen
0: the pictures, right? All those yeah. ships
1: out there. Everyone saw pictures there, was, but it was happening everywhere though. Just not, that was the extreme case. But part of it's because, you know, we had it here too, but just not as much because there's just not there's not enough space for ships to actually anchor or be adrift in Puget Sound or the Strait of Juan de Fuca, right? I mean, there's just, there aren't enough bays and areas outside of the shipping lanes where they could do that. Whereas San Pedro Bay is just massive, right? I mean, it's just a huge, uh, huge bay. So, um, you know, so that's, that's, those are the main factors, I think. Um, and is it getting better or is it going to be like bad for a while? Oh, it's getting better. I mean, it's, it's beginning, you begin to see that it clear out a lot. I mean, you know, you still have, the backlogs, but those backlogs are being cut down. But um, I think the underlying problems going into the pandemic have not been resolved. So, you know, you still have a trucker shortage that's projected to get much worse. I mean, it was 80,000 projection before it's projected to get like what 150,000, I think by 2030. Um, So you have to address that problem. And that has to do with like, I mean, all the challenges of truck driving, right? I mean, long haul truck driving is a really hard job. Um, and then you fold in issues of like drug testing in other states, you yeah. know,
0: and, and I actually have a friend who owns a trucking company and he was telling me like they're now they're even considering like, you know, people like DUI stuff like that. They would never, mm-hmm. they would never consider that before. Now they're just, he said, we're not hiring them, but we're, we're now considering them, you know, yeah. was it 10 years ago, you know, five years ago there before it was DUI, I don't apply. Now they're like even considering that, which is a big change, I think.
1: And what do you do about like, like drug testing, right? Cause like some states legalize, cannabis, some don't, yeah. And then like, how do you negotiate that? And the problem too, it's, it's like, you have the, the, it's a hard job to begin with. You have hard limits on how much they can drive every day. Yeah. I think it's like 11 hours. So, and if you're a truck driver now, it's like, well, okay, with all this, it's kind of this like self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Or like this negative cycle, because um, if you're a truck driver and there's a shortage of truck drivers, you have this big backlog, right? The port these boxes, and you're waiting in line in queue to pick up a box or pick up cargo, and it takes you like eight hours, sometimes you wait like eight hours to pick up cargo, it's like you must not even bother because you can only drive three hours after that. And then you literally, there's like an electronic like, you yeah. know, device that tells you... It's not you, like
0: you can get overtime, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's, you, can get, you can lose your license. You can use your CDL if like you go over your 11-hour limit. I think it's 11 hours to the limit. So um, that's a hugely right? I mean prohibitive Factor, right, and it's just a, it's just a hard job. I and mean, maybe at some point they talked about like growing, like there's efforts around automating, not getting, not getting rid of the driver, but at least those those long periods to make the job easier, where like the driver can kind of step back, right? And you have like for the highway sections, you know, that gets yeah. automated, and the driver just takes the helm, like you know, when it like enters like an urban 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 environment. But yeah, it's not. It's, I don't think it's going to get any better. Um,
0: so, Spencer, so talk about um, the um, public intellectual program fellow that you're on.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, there's this organization called the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, which is uh, the biggest, or the only, really the biggest, I think, in, you know, organization devoted to a nonprofit, non-governmental organization devoted to facilitating um, better U.S.-China relations. Um, and so it has a long history. Um, I think it's, you know, it's many, many decades in existence and um, it has a lot of like kind of, you know, people who have been heavily involved in the field of U.S. relations on its board. So like, you know, Henry Kissinger still involved. Um, Jacob Lew, who was like the treasury secretary in Obama.
0: I'll be honest with you. I thought Henry Kissinger was dead. I'll
1: be honest with you. Honest with you. Yeah. Thought he was He's like 95, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I have not met him to be clear. I just say like, you know, I, I, I just, these are the people involved, like lots of interesting people like are heavily involved and have a really impressive resume in China are involved. And um, so they have this program. It's on the seventh cohort and it's called, yeah, Public Intellectuals Program. And it's basically, it's a program designed to encourage um, academics mostly, but anyone involved in China who's like really steeped in China and US-China relations to really make their research and make their, their findings accessible to a broader public um, in order to facilitate a more informed discussion around US-China relations. Um, it's mostly academics. Um, I'm kind of the outlier. Um, usually it's like maybe three quarters academics who are like really kind of ivory tower, like heady research on very specific areas, whether it's like history or pol- political science or economics or sociology or geography. Um, I, even, I have a PhD, but I'm not an academic. Um, I mean, I'm an affiliate faculty, but I'm not, I'm not on an academic track. I'm a consultant. Um, so, usually, there's like a few people who are like outside of academia who are also part of the group. Um, so, those would be in my case, like in my cohort, it's like me, um, there's a naval commander, and then there's like an a, a investment fund, investment firm. Um, and it's
0: like a government agency, a nonprofit, it's non
1: government. Okay. Yeah, nonprofit, non NGO. And so they do things like it's a two year program, although, yeah, it's a two year program. And we have a series of workshops um, in DC. And then we just, I just last weekend we had one in San Diego. I'm guessing it's
0: pretty competitive to get accepted.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty competitive. It's a really great program. It's, 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 it's a really excellent program.
0: Do you have to be nominated by someone or you, you apply? Or how's that process work? You apply, but you have to have like referrals. Okay. So, um,
1: yeah. And it's just they teach you like, you know, you learn you interact with it. Part of it is like, part of it is like interacting with other public intellectuals. So people who are, you know, whether they're in like working for like think tanks or in academia, but with like a really like prominent voice in the public domain on US-China relations, interacting with them, having them talk to you about their experiences and what they do, and also like training. Um, So learning about, you know, How to write, how to really, you know, what what are the best practices for engaging the public? How to really hone your message um, to get, you know, instead of, you know, people's eyes glossing over, blazing over, right? When you talk about a bunch of like, you know, sort of ivory tower abstract concepts, getting to the main point. And then, yeah, just like talking to people like, you know, who are in policy as well. So um, when we were in DC for our last workshop, we met with a lot of people from like, you know, State Department, Defense, um, National Security Council. Um, you know, U.S. U.S. Trade Representative Office, um, and all all sorts of interesting people who are directly involved in policy to learn about what kind of information do you need, um, to help to what are you looking for from it from a, some all these different areas of expertise that we offer like
0: what can we offer to you to help inform your your work? So, especially recent years, it's like you no, know, the word to have this negative connotation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for you no, know, for whatever reason how do we get back to the plate? Now like we need intellectuals, you know, intellectuals lead our country, they move us forward. Being intellectual is actually a great thing for our country. How do we change that? Yeah,
1: that's a huge, that's a big question. I mean, I think, so my, my interpretation and it, it's just mine, right? Like, but I think that there's been a big backlash against expertise and, you know, and we saw that, I think there was a, a part of it was, was, I think, a class i think that people generally, not always but there's a perceived class division between people who have the time and energy and just resources to like go to college and get a phd right or whatever and those that don't and i think that those people the people who who are in that group of like highly educated were not they became kind of like like almost cloistered off and they were not listening to like what the other rest of the world, the rest of the population was experiencing. And I think that division became really unfortunate. So I think like having the people who are self-declared intellectuals, right. For lack of a better term, maybe like they need to really re-engage with the public and really listen to people, like not tell them or not dictate policy or say, this is good for you. This is good medicine for you. But no, like they know things you don't know, and understanding like what the average person on this is experiencing, whether they're like a manufacturing worker or they're really you know in a services industry or they have different you know unique circumstances. Like we have people in academia, and those experts need to listen and, and be much more empathetic and respectful too of like those people. You know, there's a, an an easy tendency I think for people to like, you know, like look down upon people like in per, parts yeah. of the, like you've heard the phrase like flyover states. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's such a terrible term, right? It it's such so so a, it's such a, so, cond- so disrespectful, so disrespectful, so condescending. And I've been in, I've been in events where like people say that and it's like, ah, oh, really? Like, cause you can learn a lot by stopping in those states. There's a lot you can learn as an, as a, as an intellectual, right. Um, and it's really extreme, right. In Seattle, right. We live in this yeah. bubble in Seattle where it's like, you know, I think that, more people in Seattle to like go to other parts of the country and not just New York.
0: Right. Or so, San so, so I joke around, like I told you before I live in DuPont, right. Have a joke that people in Seattle, they think anything South of the airport is like Mexico. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, tr- it's probably pretty accurate.
1: Right. I mean the, the perception, but the other thing too, is like the, um, the, like, it, we saw this really play out in a really destructive way during COVID. Right. Because, you know, you had like, you had a lot of like, you know, distrust of
0: science and distrust of, you know, expertise. Yeah. I think it came from people like, well, the public can't handle the truth, you know, don't tell them everything. Right. We'll, we'll tell them this, but we really mean that, you know, and they got caught, you know, telling how truths or what do you want to call it? And mm-hmm. the people caught them on it. Like, why would we trust anything you say, you know, or, or just like some like, like modesty, right? Like to say yes.
1: like, like, Hey, like, you know, this is an entirely new thing. Like. I have a PhD in immunology and an MD or a virology or whatever. But like I'm gonna be honest with you, like, I think that, you know, I think that taking these measures is gonna work, but you have to you have to, but I don't know for sure. Like, I don't have the certitude, but this is my best. We've never dealt with this before. So this is the best thing.
0: And if a, Instead of saying, if you question me, you're questioning the science, right? But right. you're supposed to question the science, right? Yeah, but the thing you're supposed to you should question the science, but also think that there was also on the other
1: side, there were the, a lot of people who felt like I read this online. So that makes me just as well informed yeah. as someone my, with a PhD. My, my,
0: my Facebook PhD. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like
1: that that willingness and it's like that deluge of information that people didn't have back like years, like several years yeah. ago, where it's like, now it's like, you can just pick and choose. So if yeah. you're like, I don't want to do that because even though the people with the PhDs say this or the MDs say this, like it doesn't contort, conf- you know, conform with what I want, and I can. Oh, find my, this- oh my
0: friends say the same thing I do, so this really reemphasize really the yeah falsehood. Yeah, it's craziness.
1: Like I'm just like you know, like like my attitude is like, hey, like you know, I'm not a doctor. I mean, so I'm gonna just I'm I mean, my money's on the people who've like studied like diseases exactly. and infectious disease and you know. Who are
0: qualified? Or oh, where people said I did my research. Really, you did your scientific research. Yeah, you read. You read. <laughs> yeah, your really. Yeah, really, you did his research. And it's, but it goes both ways, right? And it's also
1: like there's a bit of elitism on the on the left, or the, or not the left. I don't want to say left, but like in that field where it's like, you know, it's like a, it's a both ways, right? Like people with like. Like have like a morally virtuous or superior position by telling you you should do it this way, right? It's like, oh, you're not wearing a mask right it, it, now. and it, it like,
0: made it worse when they got caught, you know going out to dinner a little mask. themselves, yeah yeah, you yeah. Know?
1: yeah, Oh, the hypocrisy is so, but it, totally, and it's like I just wish we could just like step back and be like, okay, and we're already all through this, right? Mm-hmm. but like, like I wish we could have just stepped back and say, okay, time out, like like let's just strip away all the 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 let's try let's try let's not condescend each other, let's just okay, this is not, this should not be a political thing. This is just like, okay, you, you know, like the doctors, like you're doing the best you can. And you guys with the, you're the people with the qualifications of science, um, you know, tell us what you know, but also be be clear that these can change. Right. And we should brace for potentially changes because as we want people to adjust their opinions as new information arrives. Right. Like we want the science to be updated. Right. So and then we're not, we're going to trust you. Right. And I just wish there was more of like, I mean, I don't know. I just, yeah, I just, no, I wish
0: there was. That, I agree. That. One thing we had to realize we got very, very lucky. I think, right. I mean, people died you know, every life precious, <laughs> but the big scheme of things, I think we got very, very lucky. This was nowhere as bad as people, people thought it was going to be.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but
0: then it, right. It, but
1: I don't know how many Americans ultimately died from it, but like, I forget the numbers, but yeah, I mean, it's, it could be much worse, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. It, it leaves me to so maybe it's like a, a primer for the, the
0: much more like you know, the yeah. much worse. to get us ready for the big one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So next, Spencer, can you talk about your company, a high peak strategy, like how you got it started, where the idea came from, mm-hmm. where you're focusing on now, what's your vision for the company moving forward? Yeah. So, um,
1: so I always, I had been in consulting for a long time prior to starting my company, and I just always wanted to start my own business. It was always an aspiration of mine, and. You know, kind of ironically, one would say like, so I started my company in 2020. And I'm like in the, in the late fall, in the fall of 2020. And which is typically not a good time. One would think to start a company
0: during a global pandemic. But, but uh, Actually, that's the best time because back in 2008, the great, greatest says like Airbnb started, you know, mm-hmm. all the Instagram started. So, statistically so, speaking, the hard, that's actually the best time to start companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally.
1: And like, I, I think on top of that too, like for me, I think the, um it was ironically working from home gave me the confidence that I could start my business. So i I'm like, you know, like this, I was, it was a level playing field now. Right. Whereas before it's like, if I start my business, I'd have to like really invest all this energy and in, in structures and systems to like go out and like, inter, you know, like even invest in an office or whatever. Right. Like, and now it's like, no, it's like everyone's working from home. It's an, the, the loving, the playing field has been leveled. And so You know, I just felt, and I and I demonstrated to myself that I could actually, I could do it at home. Like I have a good office set up. I was being productive, and so um, it gave me a lot of confidence. So I finally just took the leap and did it, Um, and it's been really rewarding. I mean, I do, um, and it's really fun. I mean, it's been exciting and fun. It's 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 fun to be entrepreneurial and try to build your brand. Um, What I offer is, you know, independent analysis. Around kind of three really you know core areas, that would be you know U.S. China relations, international trade and port operations and trade, and then regional economic analysis. And so I bring a lot of that. I bring that to my clients. Um, But there's often like different types of needs that they have if they're you know if they're they want to understand how a lot of the sort of volatility. In global economy, especially us general relations, is impacting their potentially impacting their business or their clients. Their clients, um, I offer um, a narrative an explanation and sort of a an, you know an explanation and an understanding of like the potential risk factors that could play into um, their operations and what they should be aware of. Um, when it comes to port operations, it's helping them whether it's understand their impacts or you know understand like supply chain disruptions as well. I've done a lot of work around lately. What impact that's going to have on them long term? What's the, what in that? How that might inform a broad understanding of the, the the trends and what that might do to their business or their operations, and whether that could potentially result in changes in trade flows over time and cargo shipping shipping flows, and how that would alter their business. And then for regional economic analysis, um, a lot of work at the local level, um, you know, with not just governments but also industry associations who have a need to demonstrate what their impact is on a community or an economy. So, you know, I've worked with like, you know, the wine industry, I've worked in, you know, like, you know, with ports, I worked with um, other like manufacturing, I've done the tech sector. And then in my earlier life, when I was working as a, with another firm, I was doing, you know, aerospace, maritime, um, agriculture. So just working all these different industries to help them, you know, really build the right messaging and, and analysis that they need to advocate for different policies. So, so how do you find your customers? Um, it's been kind of funny, like for the most part, they found me. It's been really like fortunate because um, I mean, I, I definitely try to, I find, they find me, but I, I am quite, I don't say aggressive, but I should be more aggressive. But, um, I try to be like in the public domain as much as I can. Um, I write, Op-eds. I'll yeah, I saw on LinkedIn, you do
0: a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. You do a lot of op-eds, a lot of, speaking, a lot of public mm-hmm. speaking opportunities. Yeah,
1: a lot of public speaking opportunities. Um, um, you know, all kinds of kind of engagement. And, and are your customers
0: mainly in the center or the, across the West Coast, across the nation?
1: Uh, mostly like the, the Western half of the US. So I've worked as far East as like part of Houston. So I've done work in Texas, Arizona, Colorado, California. Um, most are in Washington state, but I try as much as I can, um, just cause I find it really interesting to work in other parts of the country, um, try to get out as much as I can to so like further and further East and South. And so, yeah. And then, um, as well as like some work in China as well with some, with some consulting firms in China that I've worked with.
0: Do a lot of Chinese companies bring you on to help you help them come to the United States?
1: Not now, just cause, um, I started my company, um, during the pandemic and it just, there was like complete dry up of any sort of FDI. And the 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 environments for foreign direct investment from China really dried up because of um, the sort of um, kind of like worsening um, U.S.-China relationship, and the climate for U.S.-China relations really soured. And so, and then the Trump administration implemented a lot of rules that made it more prohibitive or difficult for Chinese firms to invest in the U.S. Um, so you didn't see as much of it um, happening, but it, but mostly just with the U.S. companies trying to and, some Chinese companies have tried to explore like, well what, how has like for instance like tech policy mm-hmm. how is tech how, what is the u what is the current state of u s tech policy towards China in terms of like you know what is our policy in the tech space um, vis-a-vis China, and so trying to unpack that for them and yeah. what direction it's moving in?
0: So, I mean, I obviously, don't tell the details, but do you charge by the hour, or by project, or just a combination on case by case basis? Just depends. How yeah, you charge. it just
1: depends. Like, I have like a an hourly rate that I'll charge if it's something very like you know kind of a la carte or like they have like a you know a task set of tasks. But most ninety nine percent of the time, um, I will just I will scope a budget for the project based on their needs, and then I'll we'll agree on that price, and I'll execute on that, and they'll just get you just get billed based on deliverables. Which is more comfortable for me because billable hours are 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 useful in some space, some areas, but oftentimes there's a bit of it's it's just easier to just like I'll use a billing rates to compute what I think the budget should be for a project. But in the end, it's much easier for me just to bill on deliverables. It feels better too. It's like you paid, yeah, you paid. You know, here's like there's like three deliver- deliverables for this project, and so it feels better as a consultant to say like I've delivered this deliver, I've given this deliverable, and you compensate
0: for that. So. How do you sell what products to take on, what products not to take on? Um, I think it's like, so I've almost pretty much always like um,
1: whenever someone's like approached me about a project, which in fact has been most of the case, been really cool. It's like I, I seldom ever actually, which is maybe not, I don't know how sustainable this is, but almost all my work has been based on um, referrals and direct soul sourcing. So people will just come to me with a project because they hear about me or they know me already. Or they've been referred to me by, by a colleague or clients, which has happened uh, a number of times. And so they'll come to me with a project. And so I will just, yeah, I'll just work with them and, and I, I don't turn those down. Um, sometimes those projects are outside of like what I, what my, what I see as my core value, um, or I shouldn't say core value, but maybe where I, I really wanna go directionally with projects and where I wanna see the vision of the company. But I also really wanna make sure that I, I help them and, and help their needs so um so i don't turn those down it's really more on the 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 if it's a public project like a public you know government project where there's an rfp process um i'll evaluate if that project is aligned with you know one if it's something i want to do i mean i'm quite busy now where it's like i can actually decide not to pursue stuff because i feel like i've already gotten off my plate um and so and if it's not a project where i really either really want to do it and or seat is perfectly well or really well aligned with my skill set and my offerings, then I just don't pursue it. Spencer, is there anything that I should have asked you that
0: I haven't asked you yet or anything else you want to talk about? I don't know. You've asked me a lot. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Um, can you, can you share your social media for you and your company? So people are going to reach out to you. Sure.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm actually embarrassingly not that involved on Twitter, although I know I should be, so I won't give that yet. I'll post at some points. Um, but, um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can just look me up on LinkedIn, just Spencer Cohen. Um, on link, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. You can also get my website. It's called highpeakstrategy.com. And that's where I um, you can learn about my company there as well.
0: So And to listeners who have on social media on the on the, social, on the um, show notes, you can find the show notes at ww.cavinushwbla.com. Be sure to subscribe, and review the Jason Cabin experience on your favorite p- platform. So, Spencer, we're coming into our talk. Do you have any last-minute advice or wisdom on anything you want to talk about? Uh, no, just think, like, you
1: know, thanks again for inviting me. It's been really fun. And, um, yeah, always happy to re-engage on this stuff and for the follow-up questions, you know, and just, yeah, just
0: stay, in, stay engaged, I guess, in all these topics. So Yes, thanks, <laughs> to the audience. So. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you and remember to be great every day.
1: You
0: got to pump it up, and don't you know, pump it up. You got to pump it up, and don't you know, pump it up. You got to pump it up, and don't you
1: know, pump it up. You got to pump it up, and don't you know, pump it up. You got to pump it up, and don't you know, pump it up. You got to pump it up.